Book Three, Chapter Seven of the Lancashire Witches. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Andy Minter. The Lancashire Witches, A Romance of Pendle Forest, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book Three, Houghton Tower. Chapter Seven. THE ROYAL DECLARATION CONCERNING LAWFUL SPORTS ON THE SUNDAY Not many paces after the King marched the Duke of Buckingham, then in the zenith of his power, and in the full perfection of his unequalled beauty, eclipsing all the rest of the nobles in splendour of apparel, as he did in stateliness of deportment. Haughtily returning the salutations made to him, which were scarcely less reverential than those addressed to the monarch himself, the prime favourite moved on all eyes following his majestic figure to the door. Buckingham walked alone, as if he had been a prince of the blood, but after him came a throng of nobles, consisting of the Earl of Pembroke, High Chamberlain, the Duke of Richmond, Master of the Household, the Earl of Nottingham, Lord High Admiral, Viscount Brackley, Lord Howard of Effingham, Lord Zouche, President of Wales, with the Lords Knollys, Mordaunt, Compton, and Grey of Groby, one or two of the noblemen seemed inclined to question Richard as to what had passed between him and the King, but the young man's reserved and somewhat stern manner deterred them. Next came the three judges, Doddridge, Crook, and Houghton, whose countenances wore an enforced gravity, for if any faith could be placed in rubicund cheeks and portly persons, they were not indisposed to self-indulgence and conviviality. After the judges came the Bishop of Chester, the king's chaplain, who had officiated on the present occasion, and who was in his full pontifical robes. He was accompanied by the lord of the mansion, Sir Richard Houghton, a hale, handsome man between fifty and sixty, with silvery hair and beard, a robust but commanding person, a fresh complexion, and features by no means warranting, from any marked dissimilarity to those of his son, the king's scandalous jest. A crowd of baronets and knights succeeded, including Sir Arthur Capel, Sir Thomas Brudenell, Sir Edward Montague, Sir Edmund Trafford, Sheriff of the County, Sir Edward Mosley, and Sir Ralph Asherton. The latter looked grave and anxious, and as he passed his relatives, said in a low tone to Richard, "'I am told Alison is to be here to-day. Is it so?' "'She is,' replied the young man. "'But why do you ask? Is she in danger? If so, let her be warned against coming.' "'On no account.' "'replied Sir Ralph. "'That would only increase the suspicion already attaching to her. "'No, she must face the danger, and I hope she will be able to avert it.' "'But what is the danger?' asked Richard. "'In heaven's name, speak more plainly.' "'I cannot do so now,' replied Sir Ralph. "'We will take counsel together anon. "'Her enemies are at work, and if you tarry here a few minutes longer "'you will understand whom I mean.' "'And he passed on.' A large crowd now poured indiscriminately out of the chapel, and amongst it Nicholas perceived many of his friends and neighbours, Mr. Townley of Townley Park, Mr. Parker of Browsholme, Mr. Shuttleworth of Gawthorpe, Sir Thomas Metcalfe, and Roger Nowell. With the latter was Master Potts, and Richard was then at no loss to understand against whom Sir Ralph had warned him. A fierce light blazed in Roger Nowell's keen eyes as he first remarked the two Ashertons, and a smile of gratified vengeance played about his lips, but he quelled the fire in a moment, and compressing his hard mouth more closely, 
bowed coldly and ceremoniously to them. Metcalf did the same. Not so, Master Potts. Halting for a moment, he said, with a spiteful look, "'Look to yourself, Master Nicholas, and you too, Master Richard. A day of reckoning is coming for both of you.' And with this he sprang nimbly after his client. "'What means the fellow?' cried Nicholas. "'But that we are here, as it were, in the precincts of our palace, I'd after him, and cudgel him soundly for his insolence.' "'And where's that you'd be after dinging, man?' cried a sharp voice behind him. "'No, that poor feckless body that has just skipped it off. <laughs> "'If say, you'll take the wrong sou by the lug, "'and I counsel you to let him bide for his high favour with the king.' Turning at this address, Nicholas recognised the king's jester, Archie Armstrong, a merry little knave with light blue eyes, long yellow hair hanging about his ears, and a sandy beard. There was a great deal of mother wit about Archie, and quite as much shrewdness as folly. He wore no distinctive dress as jester, the bauble and coxcomb having long been discontinued, but was simply clad in the royal livery. "'And so Master Potts is in favour with His Majesty, eh, Archie?' asked the squire, hoping to obtain some information from him. "'And say were you the day afore yesterday, when you hunted at Myerscough,' replied the jester. "'But how have I forfeited the King's good opinion?' asked Nicholas. "'Come, you're a good fellow, Archie, and will tell me.' "'Here, dinna think to fleech me, man,' replied the jester, cunningly. "'I ken what I ken, and that's mair than you'll get for me wi' all your spearing. The king's secrets are safe wi' Archie, <laughs> and for a good reason that he's never told them. You're a good huntsman, and says his majesty, but there's a kind of game he likes better than another, and that's to be found mostly of these parts.' I mean witches, and I like fearful carlins. We mun hear the country rid of them, and that's what his majesty intends. And if you're a wise man, you'll lend him a helping hand. But I'm a in to tune. And with this the jester capered off, leaving Nicholas like one stupefied. He was roused, however, by a smart slap on the shoulder from Sir John Finnet. What? "'Pondering over the mask, Master Nicholas, or thinking of the petition you have to present to his majesty?' cried the master of the ceremonies. "'Let neither trouble you. The one will be well paid, I doubt not, and the other well received, I am sure, for I know the king's sentiments on the subject. Uh, but touching the dame, Master Nicholas, have you found one willing and able to take part in the mask?' "'I have found several willing, Sir John,' replied Nicholas. "'But as to their ability, however, that's another question. "'One of them may do as a makeshift. "'They're all in the base cart, and shall wait on you when you please, "'and then you can make your election.' "'So far well,' replied Finnet. "'It may be that we shall have Ben Johnson here to-day. "'Rare Ben, the prince of poets and mask-writers. "'Sir Richard Houghton expects him. "'Ben is preparing a mask for Christmas, to be called the Vision of Delight.' in which His Highness the Prince is to be a principal actor, and some verses which have been recited to me are amongst the daintiest ever indicted by the bard. "'It will be a singular pleasure to me to see him,' said Nicholas, "'for I hold Ben Johnson in the highest esteem as a poet. Aye, above all of them, lest it be Will Shakespeare.' "'Aye, you do well to accept Shakespeare,' rejoined Sir John Finnet. "'Great as Ben Jonson is, and for wit and learning no man surpasses him, 
He is not to be compared with Shakespeare, who, for profound knowledge of nature and all the highest qualities of dramatic art, is unapproachable. But ours is a learned court, Master Nicholas, and therefore we have a learned poet. But a right good fellow is Ben Jonson, and a boon companion, though uh, somewhat prone to sarcasm, as you will find if you drink with him. Over his cups he will rail at courts and courtiers in good set terms, I promise you, and I myself have come in for his jibes. However, I love him none the less for his quips, for I know it is his humour to utter them, and so overlook what in another and less deserving person I should assuredly resent. But is not that young man who is now going forth your cousin, Richard Asherton? I thought so. The king has had a strange tale whispered in his ear, that the youth has been bewitched by a maiden, Alison Nutter, I think she is named, of whom he is enamoured. I know not what the truth may be in the charge, but the youth himself seems to warrant it, for he looks ghastly ill. A letter was sent to His Majesty at Myerscuff, communicating this and certain other particulars, with which I am not acquainted, but I know they relate to some professors of the black art in your country, the soil of which seems favourable to the growth of such noxious weeds. And at first he was much disturbed by it, but in the end decided that both parties should be brought hither, without being made aware of his design, that he might see and judge for himself in the matter. Accordingly, a messenger was sent over to Middleton Hall, as from Sir Richard Houghton, inviting the whole family to the tower, and giving Sir Richard Asherton to understand it was the King's pleasure he should bring with him a certain young damsel named Alison Nutter, of whom mention had been made to him. Sir Richard had no choice but to obey, and promised compliance with His Majesty's injunctions. An officer, however, was left on the watch, and this morning reported to His Majesty that young Richard Asherton had already set out with the intention of going to Preston, but had passed the night at Walton Dale, and that Sir Richard, his daughter Dorothy, and Alison Nutter would be here before noon. Oh, his Majesty has laid his plans carefully, replied Nicholas, and I can easily conjuncture from whom he received the information, which is as false as it is malicious. But are you aware, Sir John, upon what evidence the charge is supported? For mere suspicion is not enough. In cases of witchcraft, suspicion is enough, replied the knight gravely. Slender proofs are required. The girl is the daughter of a notorious witch. That is against her. The young man is ailing. That is against her, too. But her witness, I believe, will be produced, though who I cannot say. Oh, gracious heaven, what wickedness there must be in the world when such a charge can be brought against one so good and so unoffending, cried Nicholas. A maiden more devout than Alice and never existed, nor one holding the crime she is charged with in greater abhorrence. She injured Richard, she would lay down her life for him, and would have been his wife but for scruples the most delicate and disinterested on her part. "'But we will establish her innocence before His Majesty, and confound her enemies.' "'It is with that hope that I have given you this information, sir, of which I am sure you will make no improper use,' replied Sir John. "'I have heard a similar character to that which you have given of Alison, and am unwilling she should form a victim to art or malice. 
"'Be upon your guard, too, Master Nicholas, for other investigations will take place at the same time, and some matters may come forth in which you are concerned. The King's arms are long, and reach and strike far, and his eyes see clearly when not hoodwinked, or when other people see for him. And now, good sir, you must want breakfast. Here, Farringdon,' he added to an attendant, "'Show Master Nicholas Asherton to his lodging in the base-court, "'and attend upon him as if he were your master. "'I will come for you, sir, when it is time to present the petition to the king.' "'So saying, he bowed and walked forth, turning into the upper quadrangle, "'while Nicholas followed Farrington into the lower court, "'where he found his friends waiting for him. "'Speedily ascertaining where their lodgings were situated, "'Farrington led them to a building on the left.' almost opposite the great bonfire, and ascending a flight of steps, ushered them into a commodious and well-furnished room looking into the court. This done, he disappeared, but soon afterwards returned with two yeomen of the kitchen, one carrying a tray of provisions upon his head, and the other sustaining a basket of wine under his arm, and a snowy napkin being laid upon the table, trenchers, viands, and flasks were soon arranged in a very tempting order so tempting, indeed, that the squire, notwithstanding his assertion that his appetite had been taken away, fell to work with his customary vigour, and plied a flask of excellent Bordeaux so incessantly that another had to be placed before him. Sherborne did equal justice to the good cheer, and Richard not only forced himself to eat, but, to the squire's great surprise, swallowed more than one deep draught of wine. Having thus administered to the want of the guests, and seeing his presence was no longer either necessary or desired, Farrington vanished, first promising to go and see that all was got ready for them in the sleeping apartments. Notwithstanding the man's civility, there was an over-officiousness about him that made Nicholas suspect he was placed over them by Sir John Finnett to watch their movements, and he resolved to be upon his guard. "'I'm glad to see you drink, lad.' he observed to Richard, as soon as they were alone. "'A cup of wine will do you good.' "'Do you think so?' replied Richard, filling his goblet anew. "'I want to get back my spirits and strength, to sustain myself no matter how, to look well. <laughs> if I can only make this frail machine carry me stoutly through the King's visit, I care not how soon it falls to pieces afterwards.' Oh, "'I see your motive, Dick,' replied Nicholas. "'You hope to turn away suspicion from Alison by this device, "'but you must not go to excess, or you will defeat your scheme.' "'I will do something to convince the king he is mistaken in me, "'that I am not bewitched,' cried Richard, rising and striding across the room. "'Bewitched! And by Alison, too! "'I could laugh at the charge, but that it is too horrible. "'Had any other than the king breathed it, I would have slain him.' "'His Majesty has been abused by the malice of that knavish attorney Potts, "'who has always manifested the greatest hostility towards Alison,' said Nicholas. "'But he will not prevail, for she has only to show herself to dispel all prejudice.' "'You're right, Nicholas,' cried Richard. "'And yet the King seems already to have prejudged her, "'and his obstinacy may lead to her destruction.' "'Speak not so loudly, Dick, in heaven's name!' said the squire in alarm. "'These walls may have ears, and echoes may repeat every word you utter.' "'Then let them tell the king that Alison is innocent,' cried Richard, stopping and replenishing his goblet. 
Here's to her health and confusion to her enemies.' "'I'll drink that toast with pleasure, Dick,' replied the squire. "'But I must forbid you more wine. You're not used to it, and the fumes will mount to your brain.' "'Come and sit down beside us, that we may talk,' said Sherborne. Richard obeyed, and, leaning over the table, asked in a low, deep tone, "'Where is Mistress Nutter, Nicholas?' The squire looked towards the door before he answered, and then said, "'I'll tell you. After the destruction of Mulkin Tower and the banded robbers, she was taken to a solitary hut near Barley Booth at the foot of Pendle Hill, and the next day was conveyed across Boland Forest to Poulton in the Fylde, on the borders of Morecambe Bay, with the intention of getting her on board some vessel bound for the Isle of Man. Arrangements were made for this purpose, but when the time came she refused to go, and was brought secretly back to the hut near Barley, where she's been ever since, though her place of concealment was hidden even from you and her daughter. The captain of the robbers, Fogg or Demdike, escaped, did he not? said Richard. Aye, in the confusion occasioned by the blowing up of the tower, he managed to get away, replied Nicholas and we were unable to follow him, as our intentions had to be bestowed upon Mistress Nutter. This was the more unlucky, as through his instrumentality, Jem and his mother Elizabeth were liberated from the dungeon in which they were placed in Whaley Abbey, prior to their removal to Lancaster Castle, and none of them have been heard of since. "'And I hope we'll never be heard of again,' cried Richard. "'But is Mistress Nutter's retreat secure, think you?' "'May it not be discovered by some of Noel's emissaries?' "'I trust not,' replied Nicholas. "'But her voluntary surrender is more to be apprehended, "'for when I last saw her on the night before starting for Myerthgough, "'she told me she was determined to give herself up for trial, "'and her motives could scarce be combated, "'for she declared that unless she submits herself to the justice of man "'and expiates her offence,' "'She cannot be saved. "'She now seems as resolute in good "'as she was heretofore resolute in evil. "'If she perishes thus her self-sacrifice, "'for thus it becomes, "'will be Alison's death-blow,' cried Richard. "'So I told her,' replied Nicholas. "'But she continued inflexible. "'I am born to be the cause of misery to others, "'and most to those I love most,' she said. "'But I cannot fly from justice. There's no escape for me.' "'She's right,' cried Richard. "'There is no escape but the grave, whether we are all three hurrying. A terrible fatality attaches to us.' "'Nay, say not so, Dick,' rejoined Nicholas. "'You're young, and though this shock may be severe, yet when it is past you will be recompensed, I hope, by many years of happiness.' "'I am not to be deceived.' said Richard. Look me in the face, and say honestly, if you think me long-lived. You cannot do it. I have been smitten by a mortal illness, and am wasting gradually away. I am dying. I feel it. Know it. But though it may abridge my brief term of life, I will purchase present health and spirits at any cost, and save Alison. Ah! Oh, he exclaimed, putting his hand to his heart with a fearful expression of anguish. "'What is the matter?' cried the two gentlemen, greatly alarmed and springing towards him. But the young man could not reply. Another and another agonising spasm shook his frame, 
and cold damps broke out upon his pallid brow, showing the intensity of his suffering. Nicholas and Sherborne regarded each other anxiously, as if doubtful how to act. "'Shall I summon assistance?' said the latter, in a low tone. But softly as the words were uttered, they reached the ears of Richard. Rousing himself by a great effort, he said, "'On no account. The fit is over. I am glad it has seized me now, for I shall not be liable to a recurrence of it throughout the day. Lead me to the window. The air will presently revive me.' His friends complied with the request, and placed him at the open casement. Great bustle was observable below, and the cause was soon manifest, as the chief huntsman, clad in green, with buff boots drawn high upon the thigh, a horn about his neck, and mounted on a strong black kirtle, rode forth from the stables. He was attended by a noble bloodhound, and on gaining the middle of the court, put his bugle to his lips, and blew a loud, blithe call that made the walls ring again. The summons was immediately answered by a number of grooms and pages, leading a multitude of richly caparisoned horses towards the upper end of the court, where a gallant troop of dames, nobles, and gentlemen, all attired for the chase, awaited them, and where, amidst much mirth and bandying of lively jest and compliment, a general mounting took place the ladies, of course, being placed first on their steeds. While this was going forward, the hounds were brought from the kennel in couples, relays having been sent down into the park more than an hour before, and the yard resounded with their joyous baying and the neighing of their impatient steeds. By this time also the chief huntsman had collected his forces, consisting of a dozen prickers, six habited like himself in green and six in russet, and all mounted on stout kirtles. Those in green were intended to hunt the hart, and those in russet the wild boar, the former being provided with hunting-poles, and the latter with spears. Their girdles were well lined with beef and pudding, and each of them, acting upon the advice of a worthy master, George Turberville, had a stone bottle of good wine at the pummel of his saddle. Besides these, there were a whole host of varlets of the chase on foot, the chief falconer, with a long-winged hawk in her hood and jesses upon his wrist, was stationed somewhat near the gateway, and close to him were his attendants, each having on his fist a falcon gentle, a Barbary falcon, a merlin, a goshawk, or a sparrow-hawk. Thus all was in readiness, and hound, hawk, and man seemed equally impatient for the sport. At this juncture the door was thrown open by Farrington, who announced Sir John Finnett. "'It is time, Master Nicholas Asherton,' said the master of the ceremonies. "'I am ready to attend you, Sir John,' replied Nicholas, taking a parchment from his doublet and unfolding it. "'The petition is well signed.' "'So I see, sir,' replied the knight, glancing at it. "'Will not your friends come with you?' "'Most assuredly,' replied Richard, for he had risen on the knight's appearance, and he followed the others down the staircase." By direction of the master of the ceremonies, nearly a hundred of the more important gentlemen of the county had been got together, and this train was subsequently swelled to thrice the amount, from the accessions it received from persons of inferior rank when its object became known. At the head of this large assemblage Nicholas was now placed, and accompanied by Sir John Finnett, who gave the word to the procession to follow them, he moved slowly up the court. Passing through the brilliant crowd of equestrians, the procession halted at a short distance from the doorway of the great hall, 
and James, who had been waiting for its approach within, now came forth, amid the cheers and plaudits of the spectators. Sir John Finnett then led Nicholas forward, and the latter, dropping on one knee, said, "'May it please your Majesty, I hold in my hand a petition, signed, as, if you will deign to cast your eyes over it, you will perceive, by many hundreds of the lower orders of your loving subjects in this your county of Lancaster, representing that they are debarred from lawful recreations upon Sunday after afternoon service, and upon holidays, and praying that the restrictions imposed in 1579 by the Earls of Derby and Huntingdon, and by William Bishop of Chester, commissions to her late highness Elizabeth of glorious memory, your majesty's predecessor, may be withdrawn. And with this he placed in the king's hand the petition, which was very graciously received. The complaint of our loving subjects in Lancashire shall not pass unnoticed, sir, said James. Sorry we to say it, but this country of ours is here infested with folk inclining to puritism and papistry, both of which sects are adverse to the cause of true religion. Honest mirth is not only tolerable but praiseworthy, and the prohibition of it is likely to breed discontent. And for this our enemies ken full well. For when, he continued loudly and emphatically, when shall the common people have leave to exercise if not upon Sundays and holidays, seeing they must labour and win their living on all other days? "'Your Majesty speaks like King Solomon himself,' observed Nicholas, amid the loud cheering. "'Our will and pleasure, then, is,' pursued James, "'that our good people shall not be deprived of any lawful recreation "'that shall not tend to a breach of the laws or a violation of the kirk, "'but that after the end of divine service they shall not be disturbed, "'letted or discouraged from any lawful recreation.' as dancing and such like, either of men or women, archery, leaping, vaulting, or any other harmless recreation, nor for the having of May-games, wits and ales, or morris-dancing, nor for setting up of maypoles and other sports, they are with used, providing the same be had in due and convenient time, without impediment or neglect of divine service. And our will further is, that women shall have leave to carry rushes to the church for the decoring of it according to old custom, but we prohibit all unlawful games on Sundays as bear-baiting and bull-baiting, interludes, and by the common folk, mark ye that, sir, playing at bowls. Author's Note This speech is in substance the monarch's actual declaration concerning lawful sports, promulgated in 1618 in a little tractate, generally known as the Book of Sports, by which he would have conferred a great boon on the lower orders, if his kindly purpose had not been misapprehended by some, and ultimately defeated by bigots and fanatics. King James deserves to be remembered with gratitude, if only for this manifestation of sympathy with the enjoyments of his people." He had himself discovered that the restrictions imposed upon them had set up filthy tipplings and drunkenness, and bred a number of idle and discontented speeches in the alehouses. End of note.
the royal declaration was received with loud and reiterated cheers, amidst which James mounted his steed, a large black docile-looking charger, and rode out of the court, followed by the whole cavalcade. Trumpets were sounded from the battlements as he passed through the gateway, and shouting crowds attended him all the way down the hill until he entered the avenue leading to the park. At the conclusion of the royal address, the procession headed by Nicholas immediately dispersed, and such as meant to join the chase set off in quest of steeds. Foremost amongst these was the squire himself, and on approaching the stables he was glad to find Richard and Sherborne already mounted, the former holding his horse by the bridle, so that he had nothing to do but vault upon his back. There was an impatience about Richard, very different from his ordinary manner, that surprised and startled him and the expression of the young man's countenance long afterwards haunted him. The face was deathly pale, except that on either cheek burned a red feverish spot, and the eyes blazed with unnatural light. So much was the squire struck by his cousin's looks, that he would have dissuaded him from going forth, but he saw from his manner that the attempt would fail, while a significant gesture from his brother-in-law told him he was equally uneasy. Scarcely had the principal nobles passed through the gateway, than, in spite of all efforts to detain him, Richard struck spurs into his horse and dashed among the cavalcade, creating great disorder, and rousing the ire of the Earl of Pembroke, to whom the marshalling of the train was entrusted. But Richard paid little heed to his wrath, and perhaps did not hear the angry expressions addressed to him, for no sooner was he outside the gate than, instead of pursuing the road down which the king was proceeding, and which has been described as hewn out of the rock, he struck into a thicket on the right, and in defiance of all attempts to stop him, and at the immediate risk of breaking his neck, rode down the precipitous sides of the hill, and reaching the bottom in safety, long before the royal cavalcade had attained the same point, took the direction of the park. His friends watched him commence this perilous descent in dismay, but though much alarmed, they were unable to follow him. "'Poor lad!' "'I am fearful that he has lost his senses,' said Sherborne. "'He's what the king would call fair, and not long for this world,' replied Nicholas, shaking his head. End of chapter 7